And a very good morning. Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band across southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band across central and far west Africa. I'm Jazz Arad in the studio with me. And Musa up ahead next with the latest in news, your economic report with Tabiso Lehoko at a quarter to the hour, and of course, Mosibudi Makura with your final sports update. Our top stories here. The UN Secretary General welcomes a decision by the AU Head of State Summit to dispatch a high-level delegation to Burundi. Today marks 26 years since former South African President F.W. de Klerk's historic announcement in Parliament that he'd release Nelson Mandela. And sports-wise, Safa... Dismisses reports that is concerned about Tokyo Sehwale's campaign, who's also decided to effect an alliance. More about that in our sports report. Now with the news, here's Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. A child has been killed and six people injured in a mortar attack on the presidential palace in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. Witnesses say they heard as many as five explosions. No group or individual has claimed responsibility for the attack. Peace talks to resolve the five-year-long civil war in Syria are expected to be complicated and difficult. That's the view of the UN Special Envoy for Syria, Stefan de Mastura, at the beginning of talks in Geneva between Syria's warring parties. More than 250,000 people have been killed in the hostilities and millions have fled as refugees. Intra-Syrian talks is going to be different and needs to be different from the previous ones. One, because we are in 2016. Two, because the people have been suffering enough. And three, that they need to see something concrete apart from a long, painful, difficult negotiation. The spokesperson for the opposition's High Negotiations Committee, Salim Al-Mislit, lists the committee's priorities. Lifting the siege and uh, freeing especially women and, and, and children. This is for us is important and also uh, stopping these uh, attacks by uh, Russian jet fighters and by the regime's uh, fighters. Today is exactly 26 years since the historic announcement by South Africa's former state president, F.W. de Klerk, that Nelson Mandela, who succeeded him, would be released from prison. The announcement put South Africa firmly on the road to its democratic transition. As part of the celebrations, the F.W. de Klerk Foundation says it will host a conference in Cape Town with retired constitutional court Justice L.B. Sachs and former ANC National, National Treasurer Matthew Sporza among the speakers. Here is the clerk making his speech on this day in 1990. I wish to put it plainly that the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. 
I'm serious. I'm serious about bringing this matter to finality without delay. The government will take a decision soon on the date of his release. And finally, the World Health Organization has declared a public health emergency over a brain condition which is related to the spread of a mosquito-borne virus. The Zika virus, which in itself is relatively harmless, has been linked to a cluster of neurological abnormalities in South America. Daniel Dickinson reports. Health experts are concerned that the Zika virus is in some way responsible for a significant increase in cases of microcephaly, a condition which leads to babies being born with an abnormally small skull and deformed brain. In Brazil, there have been some 4,000 cases of the condition reported since October. Around 20 countries, mainly in Central and South America, are thought to be affected. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Africa Rise and Shine. I'm Jazz Arad. Welcome to the show. Now, Kenya has asked the African Union to draw a roadmap for the withdrawal of African countries from the International Criminal Court. So says President Uhuru Kenyatta that the African countries are not gaining positively from being signatories of the Rome Statute. Instead, they're being witch-hunted by the International Criminal Court. This report from Coletta Wanjohi. The trial of Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta at the International Criminal Court raised a loud voice of criticism from the African heads of state and government. The leaders made their status clear that they did not appreciate the fact that the International Criminal Court was pursuing African presidents who were still serving their terms in office, yet they are entitled to immunity while in office like the rest of the presidents in the world. Although his case was dropped by the ICC for lack of enough evidence, Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta is lobbying for the African Union to push for the withdrawal of all African states from the International Criminal Court. We will not and must not tire in this effort to reform the ICC. I therefore urge you to adopt the resolutions of the Ministerial Committee on ICC and include a new mandate to develop a roadmap for withdrawal from the Rome Statute as necessary. We must reaffirm that the global standard for impunity for heads of state should also, should also apply to Africa and insist on the termination of the collapse cases against the Deputy President of Kenya. Together, we can make a powerful statement that reflects our refusal to be carried along in a vehicle that has strayed off course to the detriment of our sovereignty, security and dignity as Africans. Kenya's Vice President William Ruto's case at the ICC is still open, as well as that of a Kenyan journalist Joshua Sang. They are charged with, among other things, instigating violence during the post-elections violence in Kenya in 2007-2008. 34 out of 54 African states are parties to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says that the operation of the International Criminal Court is based on politics and the need to belittle Africans. When Kenya and the larger group of African countries joined the ICC, it was to seek legal means to complement the other important tools that we have and we sought to combat impunity while being sensitive to the reality of our young and fragile democracies. 
we have been sorely disappointed. Kenyans, including myself and my deputy, have been subjected to weak cases built on weak investigations and pursued with politicized zeal. There can be no recent illustration of this than the January proceedings in the case against my deputy, William Ruto, and journalist Joshua Sang. The prosecution seeks for the court to proceed without evaluating evidence. In any criminal justice system, these cases would never have come to trial. It is our expectation that the law will be applied and cases terminated. For now, it is only time that will tell if the African Union will give priority to the request by the Kenyan president of withdrawal from the ICC. Koleto Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The UN Secretary General has welcomed a decision by the AU Head of State Summit to dispatch a high-level delegation to Burundi to engage the government about accepting a peacekeeping mission to that country. In his address to the summit in Ethiopia at the weekend, Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, welcomed proposals to deploy human rights observers and to establish a prevention and protection mission, but appears to be softening that position in light of the AU decision. Shuan Bryce Pease reports. The AU decision on Burundi appears to have the full backing of the UN Secretary General, despite the continent's decision to pull back from its earlier approval of the African peacekeeping mission. The Secretary-General spokesperson, Stefan Dujeric. He welcomes the decisions of the AU leaders to dispatch a high-level delegation to Burundi for further consultations with President Nkurunziza and Burundian authorities and stresses that measures must be found to address the ongoing violence in the country. It is critical to start an inclusive political process in Burundi, as we've been saying here quite, for quite some time. The African Union and the countries of the regions will play a crucial effort in that, uh, in that crucial role in that effort, and the UN will continue to work with our partners to support dialogue. We pressed him on this about to and given earlier backing of the peacekeeping mission. The African Union has a leadership role to play in this. Uh, they've obviously uh, reassessed uh, the situation somewhat. We're still very much supportive of their efforts. This evil phenomenon. We also asked about outgoing AU Chair President Robert Mugabe's public admonishment of the Secretary-General on the question of Security Council reform in front of fellow heads of state at the summit. Listen to my question. I don't know if you saw the interaction with President Mugabe sort of targeting, singling out the Secretary-General about equality at the UN, UN reform. Uh, How did the Secretary-General feel about the, the, the circumstance that that played itself out in? It was a long, thoughtful pause from Dujeric. The Secretary General is not unused to being criticized and singled out. Uh, it comes with the territory, and he was, I think, very honored to be able to speak at the, this AU session, which, as he said for him, was a very emotional moment, as it was the last, um, his last one as Secretary General. Could you characterize his relationship with Robert Mugabe? No. Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon's second term at the helm of the United Nations ends on December 31st. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Today marks 26 years since former South African President F.W. de Klerk's historic announcement in Parliament that he would release Nelson Mandela. Mandela had spent 27 years in jail. As part of the celebrations, the F.W. de Klerk Foundation says retired Constitutional Court Justice L.B. Sachs and former ANC National Treasurer Matthews Poza will be among the speakers at its annual conference in Cape Town. Abongwe Kobokwana compiled this report for Channel Africa. I wish to put it plainly. 
that the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. I am serious. I am serious about bringing this matter to finality without delay. The government will take a decision soon on the date of his release. It was this watershed announcement by former President F.W.T. Clegg which paved the way for the release of Madiba and the unbanning of various liberation movements. The steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. I repeat, the steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. People serving prison sentences merely because they were members of one of these organizations or because they committed another offense which was merely an offense because a prohibition of one of the organizations was in force will be identified and released. The bold step which were announced by Declerc set the negotiation process for New South Africa in motion. But the process which later culminated in the historic 1994 elections was never an easy one. It was often met by political violence which threatened to derail the negotiations and plunge the country into a civil war. But thanks to the leadership of Mandela and others, this was averted and the new democratic government came into power in 1994. While Tiklerk has been praised for his role in ending apartheid, his political legacy continues to be highly contested. Political analyst Stephen Friedman says although Tiklerk is often criticized for his views, he believes that Tiklerk's role should be acknowledged. We have to, rea- we have to put Tiklerk in perspective quite frankly. As, as his remarks since then have shown, he was a conservative white politician who realized that apartheid couldn't survive. Uh, I think that he deserves credit for that because Ian Smith didn't realize that white supremacy couldn't survive. On the other hand, it doesn't alter the fact that he is a conservative white politician. And he's that report by Abongwe Kobokwana. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, this is Africa Rise and Shine. I'm Jazarad, and good to have you. Just tuned in. Welcome to the show. Fifteen, eight minutes, uh, 15 minutes after at a quarter past eight Central African time, live from Johannesburg. Still ahead, stories about the growing Zika virus, uh, more about that. Also, Wetlands Day today and Senior Citizen Story out of Cameroon. Also, of course, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink.
The United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights has called on Congolese authorities to work in order to improve human rights situations in the DRC. The call comes after the UN office documented an increase of 64% in the total number of human rights abuses and noted that 49% of the 2015 abuses were committed by state officers and officials. Jean-Noël Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Authorities here in the Democratic Republic of Congo need to work hard in order to improve the human rights situation in this country. That's indeed what the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights said after it documented an increase in 2015 comparatively to 2014. 64% of increase noted, 49% of the total number of human rights abuses have been committed by the state services, while the other 51% were committed by tens of armed groups operating in the eastern DRC. The office has reported about the situation, saying it's very concerned. Jose Maria Aranaz is the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights here. Our report has documented an increase of 64% in the total number of human rights abuses recorded through the territory of the RDC, bringing the total number of human rights abuses on over 8,847, of which 40 89% has been committed by state actors. We have also documented quite a large increase in the number of human rights abuses related to political rights and freedoms, which are contrary to the spirit of dialogue and to the conditions for credible elections. In the future, the UN Joint Office believes that 2015 has been a bad year for human rights protection here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, since there has been a lot of human rights abuses here and there. Coming to the 51% of human rights abuses committed by armed groups, the majority has been committed by the Rwandan rebels of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda, well known as FDLR. But the Congolese government is doing its best to eradicate human rights violations here and indeed, the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights, Jose Maria Aranas, has mentioned it. We have also seen some positive developments such as the establishment of the Human Rights Commission, the ratification of the rights of people with disabilities, some of the efforts with regards to the eradication of sexual violence by state actors, and we have also noted that among the armed groups that have committed the 51% of those human rights abuses, FDLR has committed the majority of them, followed by ADF, FRPI and LRA. All in all, it has been a bad year for the protection of human rights and this increase in violations, it's a bad. It's bad indeed and this 2015 has been said to be an electoral year. Maybe the situation might improve as this is the wish of most of Congolese on the ground. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation has denied claims that the country's drinking water quality fell by 8% between 2013 and 2014. This, despite the 2014 Blue Drop report's indication that alarmingly only 44 of the over 1,000 systems achieved the Blue Drop status of excellence.
The report also states that the Limpopo province has the worst water quality in the country. South Africa is experiencing its worst water crisis and drought in years. Leonardo Manas, Director of Water Services Regulation and Infrastructure Operations at the Department of Water and Sanitation, explains. This is not really the quality that dropped by 8%. It was the performance according to the blue drop requirements that dropped by 8%. And this can be accounted to additional requirements that came uh, as part of of the Blue Drop program. The one would be the no drop requirements as far as water conservation is concerned, which was adding another a new 3%. And the other one would be the, way, the water safety planning part, which is now to ensure that municipalities, according to the guidelines given by the World Health Organization, is implementing risk management systems that would be in line with international trends. So one can expect that the municipalities are not completely ready to implement according to these new requirements. So, yeah, the, eight, the average 8% drop can be accounted to that. But as far as drinking water quality is concerned, we can still uh, be quite proudly uh, um, uh, note that there's 80% of the 1,034 water supply systems that were assessed comply still very well with the national standards set for, 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 for drinking water quality. Is the department doing something about that um, in as far as, you know, ensuring that the different municipalities comply with the safety and guidelines as per um, that of the World Health Organization? Yes, the department has, even with the release of uh, these reports to the municipalities, have once again um, urged them to get um, rectification plans in place to improve um, overall drinking water quality compliance. But let that be it as, as it may as well, the various grant funding that is being administered through the department as well as the Department of Cooperative Governance, um, priority is being given to the shortcomings found in the drinking water quality fraternity as well as the part as being displayed by the Green Drop Report on the wastewater side. We can report that in Gauteng alone, $1.2 billion was invested over the period of the report to get our wastewater up to speed in the Gauteng area. And similar reports can be given across the country. So not only the department can take um, credit for what is being done to ensure that things are being improved, municipalities through their implementation of their projects are also doing quite well in that regard. This is obviously one of the findings that came out of the 2014 Blue Drop report. What else um, can you touch on that came out of that report? Well, the Green Drop report, um, unlike the Blue Drop report that gave us the the confidence that things are still on the path of improvement, as we have seen that um, there's a huge drop as far as water treatment work that that were previously in the critical risk zone that has dropped. To, from 223 systems to just 26 systems in that area, which is a great improvement as far as the risk are concerned. The inverse has been shown as far as the wastewater side from the green drop is concerned, that more systems have declined into the critical risk area, which means that more is required as far as investment is concerned to change the scenario with regards to wastewater treatment infrastructure and its systems itself.
South Africa is one of the 12 countries in the world where it's safe to drink tap water um, as the quality of water is ranked third best overall in the world. This is obviously something that um, the government and, and the Department of Water and Sanitation is proud of. Of course, we are proud to, to always announce when we receive visitors from other countries, especially from the water sector, to say that you in our country can still drink water from the tap, which might not be everywhere in the same situation. However, um, there are areas uh, um, where we feel that more needs to be done, where records have shown in the smaller areas perhaps where um, not enough is done to sustain that situation. But the vast majority of South Africans are in, in the favorable position where we can drink water directly from the taps. That's Leonardo Manus, Director of Water Services Regulation and Infrastructure Operations at the Department of Water and Sanitation. He was talking to Channel Africa's Homozo Mopulani. Moving on to Cameroon, associations of older persons in Central African states met over the weekend in Yaoundé in Cameroon to discuss improvement of their living conditions against the backdrop of complaints that they are increasingly being abandoned in spite of their fragile economic conditions and health. They say the situation is serious as the United Nations estimates the number of people aged 60 and above will be almost 1.2 billion by 2025 due to increasing health care. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaounde. 72-year-old former nurse Nga Giselle has been at the Yaounde Center for Old and Abandoned Persons, known in French as Santo Bethany Viacam, for four years. She says she was brought here when she started suffering from chronic heart infections by a good Samaritan after she was abandoned by her family and two kids who are traditionally supposed to take care of her. La famille, c'est là où Dieu te met, c'est là la famille. Euh, en venant ici, c'est un papa Jésus. She says when she recovered from unconsciousness, she was told a Jesuit priest called Roger brought her to the center. She says she believes she is still living thanks to God's love and a family-like love she was treated to at the center. The center is home to 45 elderly persons of both sexes. 84-year-old former teacher Jean Etundi says her daughter brought her to the center because her busy career made it impossible to take care of him. He says her daughter got a job in Cameroon's economic capital, Douala, and could no longer live with him. He says her daughter now sends money for him to treat his paralysis. Ndula Pascaline, an official of the center, says it was a social taboo in Cameroon for people to take their old parents to elderly persons' homes. But because of no incomes, poverty, or disinterestedness, many people are now disregarding the old tradition. She says elderly persons become a burden to the family and that since most youths are in search of jobs in the cities, 
They have no option than to abandon their old parents in villages or in homes for elderly persons. She says another group of elderly people who are abandoned are those who are accused of witchcraft practices. A United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs report on aging published in June 2014 ahead of World Elderly Abuse Awareness Day, states that witchcraft accusations are used to justify extreme violence and abandonment of older women in 41 African and Asian countries, including Cameroon, Burkina Faso, Kenya, Malawi, and Tanzania. A 2013 study by the Central African Economic Commission and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights states that social insurance schemes cover just 10% of Cameroon's population. Richard Nditanto, director of the non-governmental organization A Communical Service for Peace, who piloted the study, says it is imperative for the government to take care of the needs of such people. Well, we are going to engage stakeholders with this study so that they see exactly what is happening uh, with the elderly around Africa so that at least we should begin to reflect on how we can set up a, a system which would be able to rehabilitate elderly persons. There are people who spend their lives working to build a country and I don't think it is good for the country to abandon them when they are at old age. The elderly feel generally vulnerable and health and nutrition constitute their main concern. Some say they never had sufficient means to prepare retirement, especially after Cameroon's currency suffered a 50% devaluation in 1994 and state workers had a 60% salary reduction shortly after the devaluation. Social worker Mbibé Roslin says such difficult conditions made it difficult for many people to prepare for their retirement days. When they leave work and they go back to the village, they don't have what to take care of themselves, especially those who did not prepare towards their old age. So we're trying to see how we make a society that is inclusive, that will make everybody feel comfortable. The United Nations Population Division estimates that by 2050, the number of persons aged 60 will increase to 2 billion because of increased health care. 80% of them will be living in developing countries. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Now time for the news headlines here on Africa Rise and Shine. Yes, and Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. TV reports on the Crimes Against Humanity trial of former Ivorian President Laurent Gbagbo in The Hague have been banned on Equatorial Guinea state broadcaster. A child has been killed and six people injured in a mortar attack on the presidential palace in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. And U.S. Senator Ted Cruz has won the Iowa Republican caucuses, the first vote of the U.S. 2016 presidential election. Those are the stories making headlines. This is Africa Rise and Shine. I'm Jazz Arad. Gone, just gone 8.30 Central African time 
in Johannesburg. South African Minister of Arts and Culture, Natyam Tetwa, yesterday hosted a national convention on nation-building, social cohesion and reconciliation in Johannesburg, South Africa. The convention follows a meeting held by the Minister and Social Cohesion Advocates last month to chart a way forward for the development of sectoral and national plans to combat racism and eradicate discrimination in South Africa. South Africa has emerged from centuries of apartheid, segregation and colonialism with a history of institutionalized racism, which created a fragmented society. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen that much remains to be done to build non-racialism in particular. More from spokesperson at the Department of Arts and Culture, Lisa Kubrick. Well, what the meeting sought to achieve was really become a launching platform towards a a popular united front for nation building, social cohesion and reconciliation. What the intentions of the Minister in the Arts and Culture Department was to bring together as many stakeholders as could be accommodated within one day and literally hear them speak from all sectors of society in terms of what is it that they can all do individually as sectors and together to really build a non-racial society but also to eradicate racism. Do you think a discussion is enough to facilitate nation building and reconciliation 21 years later because there's been many similar discussions around the same issues with very little progress? It's a very interesting question because really the question you're asking It's about how much progress have we indeed made in 22 years of our democracy. Yes. And the comment implicit is, have we done so little that we're now stuck almost as if we're at the beginning again? (laughs) I think that mistakes have been made along the way. I think that in pursuit of a multicultural society, it could be possible that society in general promoted cultural diversity over unity so that inadvertently, instead of uniting people through arts and culture and, you know, politics and so forth, we've in fact developed a system, you know, where the differences that had become divisions under apartheid had in fact been further exploited. So that people tend to stand up and proclaim their diversity and not their South Africanness, not their nationness, yet they live within a nation-state. And everything that they do every day really depends on services provided by that state. So it's a very interesting question. Some argue at the moment, I mean, researchers are arguing that, in fact, South Africa is still working towards becoming a nation, that the differences from apartheid mean that people see themselves through various other lenses first, and that we're still working towards that common process South Africanism, yeah. But I think one of the fundamental things in terms of the new, that's no longer new, in terms of the democracy of 1994, was really working towards a non-racial, non-sexist democracy. And I think what we're asking, what we're saying now, is that we've not moved very far along that path towards non-racialism. We see a kind of upsurge in racial incidents, even if, you know, they manifest on social media. And really the question is, what are we as a country, as people, as sectors doing at every point of the way to fight this racism so that it becomes an anti-racism 
and put in its place a culture, if you will, of equality, a culture of inclusivity, a culture of South Africans doing things together. Who were some of the role players that attended the meeting and is an understanding of the mammoth task, yes, that lies ahead in terms of racism and rooting it out? The meeting was attended by different sectors, Mm. but you could even see from the program there were contributions from different sectors. Judge Yvonne Mohoro from the Grouping Social Cohesion Advocates spoke, Professor Mushin Kondo Mm. and Ms. Luli Kalenikov spoke on behalf of the academia the researchers, the intellectuals. They were representatives from the South African Council of Churches, the faith communities, from business, from student organizations, from trade unions, gender commission, the South African National Editors Forum, Mm. and so forth. So it was quite a broad base, but it can still become broader than that and will. Lisa Comrink, spokesperson for the Department of Arts and Culture here in South Africa. As the World Health Organization is still expected to decide whether the Zika virus should be treated as a global emergency, South Africans have little to fear from the disease. This is according to the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD. However, pregnant women in the country have been urged to avoid going to countries where the Zika virus is endemic. The virus has been linked to the development of microcephaly, which is a medical condition characterized by smaller and underdeveloped skulls and brains in infants. Now more from Professor Lucille Bloomberg, Deputy Director at the National Institute of Communicable Diseases. So I think it is important. I mean, it's an explosive outbreak. While the disease, the illness is very mild in the vast majority of people, I think it's the concern about the effect on the fetus causing microcephaly, small heads and small brains that has really prompted this meeting. Professor, why shouldn't South Africa worry about the Zika virus finding its way into the country when the same mosquito that spreads the virus is also present here? So it's not quite the same one. It is, a, I guess, a cousin. We do have Aedes mosquitoes in South Africa. You probably have some in your garden, but they're not the same. And they've not been shown to be competent in transmitting the virus. Not Zika, not Dengue, not Yellow Fever, which are related viruses. They don't like to feed on people. They um, feed outside, and they have very different characteristics. What will it take for this virus to spread to South Africa? Oh, we would have to get a competent vector, so a mosquito that's a big enough population, which we don't have, and for the virus to be introduced. That's quite difficult. You can't just have one person with a virus coming to a country and a a local mosquito. virus is present for a very short time when people are infected, and then they would have to come into contact with that mosquito, and the mosquito would have to feed and be able to transmit to somebody else. And I think all of that coming together is really unlikely. I think Brazil is very different, and other countries where it's been introduced would be similar to Brazil. They have lots and lots of these specific Aedes mosquitoes breeding very happily outside people's homes in small containers of water. They have the right climate, very tropical in areas. They have the right kind of a lot of poverty in many of the cities where these mosquitoes are really exploding and they have a lot of virus circulating. Mm. So it's really the perfect setup for an explosive ongoing outbreak. Which brings me to this next issue. Give us a brief background of this virus and its origins. So it seems to be in 90, the late 1940s was identified in the Zika forest in Uganda. 
and then identified in people, in humans. Some years later, almost 20 years later, in Nigeria, in other parts of Africa, but not lower than Uganda. And then in, um, there were small outbreaks and a number of cases in the Pacific, but much more recently there have been these explosive outbreaks. So it's not a new virus, mm. and it's been circulating at really quite a low level until now. Do you know of any clinical trials taking place for a Zika vaccine, and how long will it take for the vaccine to be made available? Well, I think there are a number of clinical studies at the moment to confirm the association between the viral infection, the Zika virus infection in pregnancy and the development of microcephaly. You need to confirm that cause and effect, but not a strong association. And then um, I think there are a number of groups looking at the development of a vaccine, but that's not an easy one, and that's not something that's going to happen uh, in the next few months, but I think, you know, obviously the science needs, the research needs to follow quite quickly. The World Health Organization says the Zika virus has gone from a mild threat to one of alarming proportions. What do you think needs to happen if the outbreak is to be contained when there's no cure or vaccine for the virus? I think it's about uh, protecting people against mosquito bites, and that's particularly important for pregnant women living in the area. I think some countries, and this is always a difficult one, have asked people to defer their pregnancies. I mean, that's not always possible. But it's to protect people against mosquito bites and to decrease breeding sites around dwellings, around people's homes. What other issues do you wish to highlight, Professor, or clarify about this virus? I think it's important at the moment, until we have a clearer idea of what the association with Zika is for people traveling to areas where Zika is a problem, to delay travel if they are pregnant. I think that would be a a cautious way to go. Professor Lucille Bloomberg, Deputy Director of the National Institute of Communicable Diseases here in South Africa, talking to Channel Africa's Elizabeth Lediga. Now, World Wetlands Day is celebrated every year on on this day, February 2nd, to mark the day in which the Convention of Wetlands was adopted in 1971 in the Iranian city of Ramsar on the shores of the Caspian Sea. Taej Munkur, Program Manager Flyways at Wetlands International, says since 1997 the Ramsar Secretariat provides outreach material to help raise public awareness about the importance and value of wetlands. It was from the information that's available through the Ramsar Convention and the other information sources. It seems like a lot of our wetlands are in a very dire situation with a lot of these wetlands being damaged or lost and changing all the time. And in each of the regions, there are many challenges in looking after the wetlands as wetlands are not recognized as being an important part of the environment that should be protected and managed and the connection between wetlands and our own livelihoods as humans are not easily understood. Basically without wetlands, no wetlands, there's no water. Without water there is no livelihoods. So this connection is not always seen by everybody. Therefore there needs to be a much greater awareness raising emphasis on getting people to understand the critical link between wetlands, water and livelihoods. This level of understanding of the role of the wetlands, is it the same as it is in Asia, Africa, Latin America and Europe? Well, the level of 
awareness is very different in different countries, let alone different regions. And it even within a country, there can be a very different level of understanding or awareness between people living in the cities or in the countryside or around a wetland. And most often, people who live closely uh, linked to a wetland, either along a river or along a lake, and they fish there or they are growing their crops along the shores of the wetland, they understand much better the importance of those wetlands because their livelihoods depend on it. And in fact, this year, the main theme of the World Wetlands Day is sustainable livelihoods and how to better ensure that wetlands can be protected and managed in order to be able to sustain the livelihoods of the people who live and depend on the wetlands, but also the people who live far away from the wetlands, but also depend on the wetlands. For example, even if you live 100 or 500 or 1,000 kilometers away, your drinking water may come from a wetland, or your power supply through hydropower plant may come from a wetland. That was Taj Munkur, Program Manager Flyways at Wetlands International, on the line from Geneva, and he was talking to Wandile Kalipa. Now time for our final ep- uh, economic report. And in the studio, here is Tabisa Lehoko with the latest. Thanks, Jazz. The Rwandan government is progressing in increasing access to electricity countrywide. The government started initiatives like model green villages in different parts of the country where it promotes the use of renewable energy sources. It is also promoting small microgrids to provide power to people in villages who are not connected to the national power grid. Competition among companies facilitating sending remittances from Ugandans living abroad and working abroad back home is set to heighten as a new player joins the market. World Remit, which partnered with the mobile giant MTN Group, seeks to enter the market occupied by the traditional global money transfer companies such as Western Union and MoneyGram by facilitating international mobile-to-mobile remittances. The traditional money transfer companies require senders to travel to their offices and fill in a lot of paperwork before money is sent. South Africa's petrochemical company Cecil has received the green light from Mozambique to develop more oil and gas fields in the southern African state. Mozambique is sitting on huge gas reserves. Developing liquefied natural gas export projects is expected to bring tens of billions of dollars to the impoverished state. Cecil, which makes 40% of its revenue from oil, says the project, about 600 kilometers north of the capital Maputo, will be rolled out in stages. South Africa's opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance has brought in their own energy expert to challenge and object against the power utility Eskom's proposed tariff increase of 16.6%. The National Energy Regulator of South Africa's hearings for the public to oppose the electricity increase was recently cancelled as a result of an alleged lack of interest. Alta has therefore contracted energy analyst and former ESCOM executive 
contacted Blom to fight on their behalf. Blom explains. The agenda is to scrutinize Eskom's application and to assist nurses in pointing out where and to what extent uh, Eskom's application is defective. Uh, we just found that the plus 500% uh, cost increases in tariffs since 2006 have just been totally unacceptable and it led to many business closures and lots of loss of jobs. Paragon Diamonds will negotiate directly with the government of Lesotho to keep its proposed acquisition of Mutaye Diamond Mine alive. This after the mine's current owner, Canada's Lucara Diamond, called off the proposed sale of a 75% stake in Mutaye Diamond Mine due to Paragon's failure to secure funding within the agreed time frame. The $8.5 million deal was sealed on the 14th of July last year. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.93 to the South African rand, 11.35 for Botswana Pula, 11.25 in Zambia, 0.70 British pound, 9.2 euro, gold 1.126 dollars, platinum 8.59 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil 33.73 dollars a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now time for our final sports report of the day, yeah, or rather of the show, here is Mosiburi Makura with. Morning sports fans and starting off with tennis news. South Africa's top ball tennis players returned home on Monday after their Australian tour. South Africa's top women's singles player Hotato Monjani, the top men's singles player Evans Maripa, as well as the top quads player Luko Sitole were welcomed by sports minister Figile Mbalula at Oartambo International Airport. Sitole, who won the Australian Open doubles title with American partner David Wagner, says he's happy with how he played in the Australian Open. And uh, leading to Australian Open uh, in a quads division, we play uh, a run robin. So they are lost in a first match uh, against my doubles partner, David Wagner. And then uh, I went short uh, on the third day against uh, Dylan Alcott. But uh, uh, I felt good the way I played there uh, because uh, the guy was really pushing me. Uh, but I I stayed there on the court. I uh, just did what uh, my coach uh, told me to do, um, and then uh, leading to to the doubles match was my first time playing with uh, David Wagner in a big uh, tournament like that, uh, and then we won uh, comfortably. 
Meanwhile, Hotaza Munjani, who added another international doubles title to her portfolio after clinching the women's doubles final with partner Louise Hunt of Britain uh, in the Melbourne Open, says she's happy with her overall performance in the tour. Yeah, I mean, I feel very happy with my performance on my Australian tour, not only the Australian Open, but overall tour. I mean, I've seen great results. And um, I mean, it's, it's very great for me to start seeing results because I've been working hard, I've been missing out chances. But uh, being able to convert those chances, it feels, it feels great, mostly looking at it as a Paralympic year. Then uh, that's an assurance that I was looking for. And getting it now, I mean, it really boosts my confidence going into Paralympics. So on tennis news, the ITF has announced the official draw for the Fed Cup by BNP Paribas Europe Africa Zone Group 1 event taking place from the 3rd to the 6th of February. The four-day event will be played in Italy, Israel at the Municipal's Tennis Centre. The 14 nations contesting the Europe Africa Zone Group 1 event are Sweden, Portugal, Ukraine, Great Britain, Georgia, Croatia, Estonia, Israel, Turkey, Hungary, Belgium, Bulgaria, Latvia as well as South Africa. All nations contesting the Zone Group 1 events will be bidding to qualify for the Fed Cup World Group 2 playoffs from the 16th to the 17th of April, with two teams qualifying for the Euro-Africa Zone and one team from both the America and Asia-Oceana Zones. South Africa have been drawn against second seeds Great Britain and Georgia N Pool B. South Africa will play Great Britain for their opening match on Wednesday morning, followed by unseeded Georgia on Wednesday afternoon. On to cricket news. Proteus all-rounder JP Dwemeni says a strong start at the, or rather in the first momentum one-day international ODI against England at the Mangawung Oval in Bloemfontein on Wednesday will be an important marker for the rest of the series. The squad has been preparing for the series with that kind of positive mindset and will want to avoid having to play catch-up cricket in a fast-moving five-day seri- uh, five-match series. Dwemeni, who put in a match, a rather man of the match performance for the Cape Cobras, scoring 68 and taking two for 19 in the Momentum One Day Cup, hopes he can take the form into the series, especially after a poor run with the bat in the recently concluded Test series. And finally, rugby news. The South African Springbok Sevens team has called up uncapped Tim Agaba for the Sydney leg of the HSBC World Rugby Sevens Series as replacement for Justin Hulid, who is returning home with a shoulder injury. Hulid landed awkwardly during a tackle against New Zealand in the pool match in Wellington on Saturday morning. He did not play at all on Sunday, leaving the already injury-hit Springbok Sevens team to complete the rest on the tournament with just 11 players. Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for today. From myself, Jazarad, producer Lebo Monomacholo, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. You can SMS plus 2782-332-5905. Take us now to the top of the hour for the news, especially on this day. Here's Johnny Clegg. 
Asim Bonanga here. This is Channel Africa. Asim Bonanga. Yeah, cool. Now, that's yeah, cool. I see, boy, now. 